The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 32 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great Dan Bailey. If you're not familiar with Dan, you should go follow him on Instagram right now. I believe it is D Richard Bailey is his handle. Dan has been uh, a top session drummer in Southern California for a number of years. He has a great studio of his own. He does most of his work out of there. He's also been the live and studio drummer for Father John Misty for a number of years. So this episode, we go pretty deep into the art of recording drums. So if you have a home studio or if you're looking to get a home studio going, there's a lot to dig into here. And then you can flesh it all out by going to Vimeo On Demand and checking out Dan's courses. He has four courses on there. The Bailey Method, one, two, three, four. Go check those out. They're all really great um, resources. I refer back to them often just to make sure I'm, uh, you know, hitting spot. So here we go. Check it out. Dan Bailey. Well, I think the last time we talked, you were still in the old studio. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've talked to you since you've. you've yeah, it's been, been about well, it was a year in October. So yeah. Okay. So just just a little over a year. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little bit about that. Um, because I did, I moved from a different space as well, and I had to kind of relearn a lot of engineering and drum oh, tech totally. stuff. It, it that's what I have a hard time getting through in in text to people with questions is like, no, I can give you some ideas how to treat your room or like not not the treatment like the uh, absorption and and stuff like that, but like how to treat room mics or how to approach recording in a certain space. Mm-hmm. But without being there, it's so hard to. There are no hard and fast rules, you know. It's like. Yeah. Every space has kind of its own quirks. Like this room has a little bit of a buildup at like 200 hertz that my other one didn't. But the other one, the high end was way harsher. You know, so I had to learn. You kind of like tailor your mic placements and your EQs to what you're getting, you know, back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so specific too. And that's the mark of a really, really good engineer is when they can be at like Henson Studios on Monday, East West on Tuesday, United on Wednesday and make and have some kind of like consistency in getting their sounds because mm-hmm. those those three rooms just couldn't sound any more different for being you know commercial studios uh yeah i think there's there's a total like learning process to getting in a new space for sure so how did you go about doing that as a as a drummer and engineer how do you learn your room it had to take a lot of time i just you know i i had a it was kind of, you know, luckily during like a little bit of a lull, it felt like, you know, when everything shut down in March of 2020, that was like, okay, if you were going to work on a record or about to, you're going to start it because there's nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. So it's time to work on a record. So luckily I got really busy for whatever reason through the summer. And then as we moved our places and as I like left the studio lease and all that, I kind of hit like a little bit of a natural lull. It feels like everyone who had a, a project ready to go did it. And then it was like, oh, this is, it's fall 2020 and it's going to be another year before mm. we can tour it. Okay. So then it, there was like this natural lull and then it picked up again the early part of this year. But that left me a bunch of time to just like come in here day one and put like put up my mics more or less like I would have at the old place and then see what the difference is. Mm. Just go like, here's, I'm just going to go in approaching it like I normally would. And some things were like, oh, I, I like the close mics better in here. But obviously, you know, this room's, 13 by 19 where the other or 15 by 19 where the other room was 24 by 22. So it's just mm. three times as big. And so you learn like, Oh, my, my room mics are going to sound different. Overheads sound different in here. They're tighter. It's just, a, it's just a, 
you know, it's, it's like, I, maybe it's like if you're, you're an artist and you get a new, you're like, I'm a pastel you know, or a watercolors guy. I'm going to go to oil. You just have to kind of, there's technique you have to learn and you just kind of have to get in there and do it. You know, are you in like some, a, uh, like figure it out and then don't mess with it. Or are you constantly changing it up? I, I think it's definitely nice to have things that I know are good. The things that I know are going to work. Like mm-hmm. I can, and then there's things like, Oh, I saw, you know, somebody, I was on a session and I saw an engineer do this. So I'm going to try that at MySpace. the next time I have a song that's in that same direction where I'm trying to get those kind of sounds. Um, so yeah, I definitely have some, some defaults for sure, especially gear wise. I, I tend to find signal paths. I really like, like I've never not run a 1073 on my kick in mic. That's just the sound I like. I'm not interested in looking for other stuff. Um, but as far as like where I place mics and stuff, yeah, that's always open for if I'm feeling adventurous that day and I want to try something for sure. Are you anything currently that you're experimenting with? Not really. You know what? Just now I, I put my, I've been running this old electro voice Omni mic, uh, kind of mid kit, you know, over the bass drum, that kind of thing for a little bit. And I've just moved it to my mono overhead and took my large diaphragm that was up there. And I've put it on a stand out in the room and just seeing what it, what it does having a, an omni dynamic as an overhead gives you a way more like 60s, you know, 1960s kind of Ringo type thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying that out. But again, that's usually I would have just that mono overhead's been there for I haven't moved that thing in like nine months. And just the other day I was like, oh, we're doing like a 60s. It would be cool to get the like dynamic mic overhead thing going on. And so, you know, set that up and leave it for a bit. And But uh, otherwise, no, it's I've been relatively there's been kind of a steady stream of stuff coming in for me to work on. So I haven't had a ton of time to just get, get weird. It's been pretty much like my days have, have been kind of accounted for, for the last couple of weeks. Mm. Is there a overhead position that you default to? Yeah. I, I, you know, usually center things over the snare drum. I, I like a, just for the ease of what I do. I think that maybe a spaced pair, you know, like where the, the overheads are separate separated sounds best. But functionally, I just love like an XY pattern. Mm-hmm. Just it, I just know it's not going to be a phase issue. Uh, it's just easier to treat as you know those two mics as, as one microphone. Uh, it's easier to place them. Yeah, you know, there's just there's a lot of benefit. It, it gives you you can't pan it left and right as far, but it gives you a, a like a tighter picture, uh, especially phase wise. Um, yeah, that's usually my go to is an XY. Uh, and then I'll, I'll use, if I need to something that's going to pan really wide, I'll use my stereo rooms for that. Mm-hmm. But usually, the, yeah, the overheads are pretty much like in an XY centered over the kit. And I'm just looking for like more or less cymbals, not even really looking for drums out of them. I had uh, an artist, engineer, producer, does it all himself, except for the mm-hmm. drums, um, <clears throat> requested I do like auto phase align. And I've been so hesitant to do that stuff. I feel like I sure. want to just get it right in the room and not worry about that stuff. Yeah, and and that's available to you like at any point. Like that seems more like a production mix engineer choice. Like mm. I know that, you know, there's definitely stuff I send off that comes back and has been put through some auto phase align plug-in, you know. Um, but that it's it just sounds a certain way too. You know, mm-hmm. that like it it sounds like it it's it makes that like sample-y type sound. Everything's very like the transient's very clean and then decays very fast. And that's that's a great sound if you're stacking stuff inside of programming or something. But I don't think it sounds like real drums anymore. It starts to sound like 
you know, starts to sound like a collection of samples. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think that's such a production choice. I just leave that up to the people doing the tune. That's uh, that feels like a choice I'm not comfortable making. Nor do I have any experience doing that. So I just record them the best I can, and if they want to line them up, that's perfectly cool. You know. So along the same lines, do you ever grid it out knowing that they're going to want it gridded or you just leave it? No, same, same. I, I, I use a computer as a tape machine. It's just mm. start, stop. Um, the, I, I, I am a very, my, my engineering expertise is, is that like, <laughs> like very narrow, but very deep. If that makes any sense. Like I know how to, I, I feel like I have a real good handle of how to record drums, but if you showed me a piano, I would have no idea. Mm. If you showed me how, if you wanted me to edit a track so you could mix it, I would have no idea how to do that. Like I just, <laughs> my, my expertise is very specific to only recording drums. Uh, so, I mean, and that's the thing is I, I feel like just like the phase thing, if they want perfect, they can get that at any point, just highlight them all drag, you know, drag and drop, you know, like pull down that menu bar, mm. whatever it is. Uh, but they're usually coming to a drummer because they want the like human feel. If it was all about perfection, likely they're just going to program it mm. in today's day and age. Um, so no, that's not something I do on my end either. That's that's another like production choice that I leave to a producer. You know? Do you think that's why the dead drum sound is just it's never going to go away? <laughs> it's very easy to engineer. Is right. the uh, uh, it's it's very forgiving because the weird stuff in a drum kit is all the overtones and like. Getting a getting a really good sounding natural quote unquote drum kit, you know the like the classic like nice microphones on like a Camco with coded ambassadors, you know like that thing. That's really hard to get. The dead drums thing is just like as long as your phases are on the same page, it's gonna sound like something. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it, even if it's because there's so much when you're going for those kind of sounds. Often you're going for like the New York City Questlove in a bedroom type sound. Mm-hmm. So like any of the little weirdness or of your space can be really cool in that context. It's that those big open drum sounds are really take a lot of expertise and I like put a lot more onus on the player, you know, dead drums are, are, you'll notice when there's no offense to producers who play drums out there, but usually when a producer plays drums on a record, it's dead drums because yeah, it's easy right. to play, easy to engineer. <laughs> it just, because it, it just, it just takes so much more, and I mean, dead drum sounds are easily my favorite and the thing I do the most, but it takes so much more touch to play like an open, high-tuned drum mm. than it does a dead, low-tuned one. It just, it, you know, you have a really dead floor tom. It sounds more or less kind of the same wherever you hit it. You know, mm. you don't have to be super accurate. Even your your bottom dynamic and, and top gets squished a little bit. So all the, all the hits are kind of the same volume anyways. You know, like it, it takes away a lot of the like player out of, you know, the necessity of the player to self-mix and get the sounds from their hands. You know, it's not so much about that. It's it's more about how you've treated the drum and how you're engineering. How often are you asked to do the classic open sound anymore? You know, I do a lot of uh, what I would call like historical recording. Like a lot of people go like, hey, I want the 60s Phil Spector thing, mm. or I want the 70s Plastic Ono Band, or, I, you know, I want Pink Floyd you know, the wall or something. It's always like very like, uh, like the, the drums are coming from like a place in time as much as like from a genre. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, then it's like, well, if you want the, the Phil Spector thing, that's, you know, like 13, 16 cranked up with coded ambassadors. And, uh, and then if you want the seventies thing, you're dealing with the dead, the dead thing. So 
in in a like how often do i get asked to do like josh freeze type like big modern open like hardly ever i haven't played on like what i would consider a rock track like in over a year it's all these like kind of low volume dead you know or historically accurate type things you know mm. um yeah it feels like i mean i grew up where we've got to be similar age and i grew up with all those like sound garden you know yeah. all those dr- all those records that sound like drums in a room yeah you know like they just sound like a, dr- a dude playing a drum kit and those will always be my favorite but that certainly is not in vogue currently <laughs> i wonder which is ironic because i heard guitar sales are through it's, the roof it's interesting seeing a lot of these new bands i it it's, makes me recognize my age I, I just turned 40 <laughs> this year but i see all these bands of like 22 year olds like really into you know sonic youth and nirvana and it's like oh yeah this it's all going to come back like yeah that's what's next up we just did the 80s for a decade <laughs> we're about to do like grunge again if not already doing it you know so like those sounds will be back and i'll get to i'll get to do some of those for a while it'd be great so does that impact the way you approach a track like are you thinking more often layers maybe not going performances i mean how do you deal yeah. with this modern approach to music making yeah, because so much now, especially in, in pop world, is it's more about like I might do like a kick and snare pass mm-hmm. and then maybe some like shakers, see how that you know feels. Then, oh, they want some Tom overdubs. OK, you know, so it's not about writing a part that you can play it all at the same time. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's about thinking like a almost like an orchestral arranger, which is my failed background at the beginning of all this anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to like, oh, there's going to be a kick and snare and then I'm going to do a Tom thing and then I'm going to leave space so I can do a snare overdub and then I'm going to do like a suspended symbol thing. Um, that, that in pop world, certainly the stacking thing is like, that's how it's been. I mean, that's, that's been the way of the world for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like, and even when you're playing drums on a pop track, you're probably playing like a kick snare hat loop that you're then going to modify and add stuff to. Um, we haven't had many like Abe Jr. on Vanessa Carlton performances in a while in pop world, you know, yeah, like, right. where it's like drummery that just plain is not a thing, you know. Um, but yeah, it depends on, you know, and, and say the 60s thing, right? Say I'm going for a Phil Spector thing. That's very much like there might be a, you know, a kick and snare pattern that that's kind of like almost like a loop that just kind of goes the whole tune. And then there might, you know, because on a Phil Spector thing, there might be like timpani. There might be like vibraphone. Yeah, there'll be other percussion elements. And so I approach it like, okay, this is going to be my kick and snare thing. And then I'm going to think what would like, oh, we need bongos on this. Okay, we need toms. You know, and in that world, on a Beach Boy session, that would have been played by four different people. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just doing it all ourselves, you know, stacking tracks. But yeah, it, it's, it's when it's appropriate to the production style of the song. I, I kind of let, because obviously if they want like Led Zeppelin, we're not going to be stacking tracks. We're just playing drums, you know, mm-hmm. so uh it it just totally depends on what kind of the producer and artist's vision for the track is you know do you still do all whatever 16 or so channels or do you you in that case say i want to do a mono overhead and kick and that's it or how do you yeah i usually do if it's going to be anything full drum kit i'm usually 12 and if they want a specific hi-hat i'll do 13 Mm -hmm. um but yeah if it's a building tracks thing unless they want a full mic package if it's about like having a loop in the middle of it i might just do like stereo rooms to have the option but then like a kick and a mono overhead and a snare Mm. and just a and because you know usually if you're putting a loop on something it's going to be kind of narrow and in the middle and then you're going to build stuff around it you know in the stereo picture so i i think that there's some benefit to if you know something is just going to be a loop don't do a full drum mic pack you know you don't you don't need all of it because it 
a mix engineer often is just going to, oh, you have a mono overhead, you know, like large diaphragm and a kick out. Well, I'm just going to use those. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be great. You know, um, and, but that's, you know, to be communicated with the engineer and the producer or the, usually the producer, like, Hey, how do you want me to record these drums? Here's what I usually do. Uh, you know, I'll send them like a, I usually go, you know, the two kick mics, the two snares the you know, run down my thing and they go, Hey, can I get like another mic, like another trash mic, or can I get, hi-hat specifically or can i get you know whatever else but usually they just want drums to sound like drums so if you if you give them something that sounds like drums they're happy you know what is the most important mic for you oh my my mono overhead for sure i have a uh i I lucked into a sony c37 on the on the cheap i don't i don't even know how i found it just right place right time on reverb and that is that through a ua la610 is like my sound that's the Mm. You can mute everything else, and it's still gonna kind of sound like the full mix sounds. Like I, I lean on that mic a lot. Uh, off, often when I'm recording, that's the only mic I'll be. That and a kick mic is what I'll be monitoring, mm. because I, if I can get the cymbals and drums to sit nice together in that mic, I know everything's gonna sound great. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's having my my thing is kind of predicated off having a mono mic that like is the sound of the drums and then I can reinforce the kick and reinforce the snare and bring mm-hmm. the toms up under it and like I think that that's a, a cool way to work uh and and get like I feel like it helps get me consistent results too like I can repeat because I know that I'm like leaning on that one sound and I know if I get that mic sounding the way it should then everything else is going to be good to go you know mm. well, how high is it I assume it's over it is about, the center of the kick yeah yeah it's it's it is about, if I had to guess, it's about 36 inches or 40 inches, maybe, above the snare drum. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, and, and I don't I don't ever, I know some engineers have, like, specific measurements. They're like, I like 44 inches from the, you know, snare mm. to the overheads or whatever. Uh, I'm just more concerned about them being the same. And then I kind of, you know, if you want a tighter drum sound, drop your overheads down. Mm. If you want to, if you want to pick up more of the space, like, back them away. You know, it's, 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 it's all pretty intuitive stuff is if, what i found all the the things i've seen good engineers do is like oh that the most common sense thing yeah great <laughs> so how do you balance drumming and engineering how do you maintain both i mean what's what's takes priority um at the i like to get all my engineering kind of ducks in a row and i like in my uh, the, the class i just put out about kind of how i start up you know mic phase relationships at the top of a session I want to get my stuff sounding good and in proper relationships and all that. And then so I don't have to think about it again. I feel Mm. like you kind of have to do the engineering first where you go like, okay, I want this kind of sound. So I know I'm going to do this kind of thing and get, get the sounds together. What I usually do is I'll do a pass of a tune, just not, you know, not having listened to it, whatever, get the sounds up and stuff. And then just fight my way through a pass, hit record at the top and just do my best to get through the song just so I can then print and send that to the client and go like, Hey, ignore the performance like sounds wise is this mm. like a is this a, the direction we're wanting to go great and then once you get the okay on that then you're just a player and then the only engineering you're doing is start stop you know on the space bar you know? what about after the fact do you do a lot of mixing not really i'll i'll do i'll you know i'll i'll, I'll trim some stuff up and, and get some sounds after you know after i get the get my kind of initial sounds then get the performances where i want them and then I'll go back through and like, you know, double check face stuff and like, oh, the rooms are a little bright, you know, roll off some top ends on the room, you know, mm. manicure them a little bit before I send them off. But 
pretty much how they sound before I start tracking is how they're going to sound at the end. And then it's just a matter of where the faders are sitting, you know? Mm. Let's talk about the kit. I noticed you've started using a lot of Canopus drums, which I, I've basically favorites. only been using Canopus <laughs> for like a year and a half now, which is crazy. Um, how did that happen? So I, I, you know, anyone who's, who's been around me long enough knows that like the, the Holy grail is the vintage kit that you can tour, you know, and, and not just in a, you know, old Ludwig kits, the, the floor tom brackets strip out, you know, and like the, and the bass drum mount isn't solid enough and the spurs aren't, are kind of wonky, you know, old drums all have those issues, but also like when you're playing, you know, a 500 cap room or maybe like a theater, you can totally get away with old Gretsch, old Camco, you know, Ludwig Rogers. They're amazing in those kind of spaces. As soon as you get outdoors and there's no walls to help you out with the, you know, like the low end, those drums just don't project. And you just feel like you're playing like, wet paper bags or something mm. like you just they just don't have enough you know like they just don't give you enough information back for for me like, they don't give me enough information back um and so i've always been looking for something that like i've been i've been with Istanbul Ega, for 11 years and couldn't be happier because i found the thing that like sounds like i wanted to all, all that so i've been looking for the drum version of that for forever um and it had always been this kind of like half measure between like these drums are amazing on tour and reliable and sound great, but like I'm not really going to go record with them mm. or they're not versatile enough to get like vibey. They're just always going to sound really pretty and good. Uh, and so, you know, I, if anybody's followed me, they've seen a million kits come through my space. Like I've tried, I've owned everything. I've tried everything. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I've shot out that I haven't posted because I didn't want to like step on any toes from anybody. But Canopus, I've had a, long story short, I've had a Canopus 14 by five and a half, the maple snare drum for like 15 years. Got it, got it forever ago. And it was always one of my favorite wood drums. Uh, and then at some point it was just like, I've played the drums in, in bop sizes and they're incredible. And it was like, well, I need, to, I need to just bite the bullet and order one in 22, 13, 16 and see how they do. And they just, I don't know what witchcraft they're doing over there, but they have, that dude cracked the code. Mm. It like, it's not, it's beyond, they feel like they're, I don't mean to be heaping praise on them this much, but they feel like they're somewhere beyond of a new drum that sounds kind of vintage, like several other companies make. Mm-hmm. I get, they are, if I was blindfolded, they are, my, my M2 kit is indistinguishable from my Camco. Mm. Like I would be taking a 50-50 shot in the dark if you walked me in blindfolded. It is, they are scary accurate to the drums they're trying to, to do. And so like the fact that you can get drums like that, that have good edges and can project and have modern hardware on them and mm-hmm. you know straight factory was very there there w- w- was a big draw for me and just after having the drums and living with them like i feel like i do with this but i don't have to think about it anymore i just leave one i have a gretsch style kit and a ludwig style kit and i just like swap them out at me as need be and I, otherwise i don't I'm not on reverb at two in the morning. Like I was for decades looking at like, what, what could I have? Oh, maybe I post this. I can swap this for something. I haven't, I haven't bought anything on reverb in a while. Like, so that's how I know like, Oh, I really like these drums because I don't shop anymore. (laughs) But the different series M2, which one is that? No, the two I have are the Neo vintage series. They make an M1 and an M2. The M1 is very like seventies stop sign badge, Gretsch. Okay. Like that's, I mean, they're, they're, if you take the heads off, they're blatantly modeled. They like they don't even lie on what they're doing. Uh, that's very seventies Gretsch. And then the M2 is a 
I think a maple mahogany that's a very like kind of Ludwig legacy type vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, and that one company has a Gretsch and a Ludwig drum. That's, that's my two sounds. You know, that's the two things I get called to do. So it was like, get it all under one roof, you know? Mm. But what, just, so what would make you pick one or versus the other for a track? It's, you know, the same way you would like a, and if you had an old Gretsch or an old Ludwig or like a, you know, a new Yamaha or whatever it was, it would be, you know, oh, this is, this is 1960s. So it's going to be like higher tuned toms. Okay. It's like, well, Gretsch excel at high tuned toms. Mm. So I'm going to go to that or like, oh, it needs to be like thuddy and kind of thumpy. Well, that's the Ludwig thing, you know? So it's, it's really just like, what is the kind of the outlook for the drum sound in general? I'll go like, oh, well, that's a, that's a, you know, a die cast hoop cranked up type sound, you know, or the same sizes. Are they the same size kits? The, uh, the Gretsch style one is 2013, 16 and the Ludwig is 22, 13, 16. Okay. And that's pretty much, I mean, man, that's, I don't, I don't know that I've owned a a Tom that wasn't 13 or 16 in like years now. Like that's, that's the sizes. And then 20 and you can do anything with a great 20 and a great 22. That's, you can get an, you can fake an 18 with a 20 and you can fake a 24 with a 22 and, and everything in between, you know? So you don't find yourself missing that 14 inch floor, Tom, ever? Every, every time I have a 14, I wish it was a 16. Mm. I've tried it so many times and it's just like, <laughs> man, I wish this was a 16. Also, because I'm not, I don't, however, my, you know, like vocabulary on the drum kit does not require three toms. I just don't. When I've had one in the kit with Misty, I've tried, you know, 12, 14, 16, 13, 14, 16 a couple times. And I just ignore the 14. I mean, you can even look at it like after the shows and the the amount of hits on the 14 is like a fifth <laughs> what's on the 16. It just, it just, I just always wish it was a 16. And I'd rather a cranked up 16 than a dropped 14. Hmm. So I just always, 16 by 16 is my size. <laughs> Did you go with a bunch of their snare drums as well? I, I have a hand. Yeah, I have a handful of them. I've got you know, several of the the maple ones, which is like their kind of flagship, you know, wood snare drum. And uh, man, they're six and a half. That Zelkova, the like hollowed out oh, wood yeah. shell thing, is yeah. unreal. That's like my when I need like a hi fi snare drum. Like if somebody wanted drums that sounded like a Sting record, it's like oh the Zelkova, <laughs> <laughs> it's like really pretty and full and all that. Um, and then I have a couple of their their metal drums that are you know, very like superphonic ish, mm. you know, like a take on that. And yeah, they're, man, they just, they just figured out how to, they, they found the recipe that other people haven't been able to recreate for whatever reason. And so it's, it's uh yeah, I've had a ton of fun playing them. Can't, can't wait to eventually get to play them in front of people. Mm. Cause I've, I've had these drums that I, I picked initially for playing live and then we've been sitting around for a couple of years. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> what do you think of the, um, the leather washer concept? You know, I don't, I think they're called. I've never had an issue with, you know, what I, what I love about them is that there's nothing on the drums that rattle. There is Mm. no metal to metal contact. Everything has a washer. The lugs don't have any moving parts. The receivers built in all that. Um, so for that, I, I love them. I don't know that they, you know, it's the same with some companies do the nylon washers and Mm. I don't know that I've ever seen any performance differences, uh, but I, but I don't think I, I don't hit hard enough to where I've ever really had like you know, tension rods backing out really bad issues with that or anything. So maybe if, if I was playing like full rim shots all the time, maybe I'd have a different opinion, but, mm. uh, 
I, I love them that, first of all, it's just, it's classy. <laughs> and, yeah. and second of all, it's, it's just, it's one less thing that can make noise, which is great, which for recording is the whole thing. Uh, drum heads. Drum heads. What are you using now? So I, I recently uh, dissolved my, my relationship with Evans. Um, they're, they're great to work for, but the, can- the Canopus drums, because they're like old Gretsch, they have the kind of oversized shell like old Gretsch does. Mm-hmm. And so like on, it is like, you know, how, how firm it is to seat a coated ambassador on an old Gretsch drum. That's more or less how these are. Mm-hmm. And Evan's collar just plain doesn't fit on these drums. Oh, and well. so I was kind of, and you know, so it was like, Hey, is there, you know, is there anything we can do about this? Hey, you know, it's just kind of, it's what we do. Totally understand. All good. Um, and I don't think I've actually reheaded it. They're all, they all ship with coded ambassadors, you know, mm-hmm. Canopus brand. And I haven't reheaded the drums yet, but. Um, I imagine they sound so good like that. I'll just be putting coded ambassadors both sides. You know, that's they they clearly know what their drums are supposed to do and know what they should be shipped with. So I'm just going to keep doing what they're doing. <laughs> um, but and that's just the heads that fit on them, right? You know, like Aquarians have the really square collar, yeah, yeah. and they just don't seat some drums, which is why they were smart and did the vintage sizing, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago. Um, just some of that. If the if the if the drum head can't seat correctly, it's just always going to be kind of boxy and weird and just kind of is what it is. But yeah, I'm I just a free agent, just buying, buying heads at a store like anybody else. <laughs> Are you going to use uh, Ambassadors Live? Are you going to go up to a heavier head? I might go to Emperor's. We'll, we'll have to see. That's, that's something we'll have to like. Me and, me and my, my tech dude have been talking about for rehearsals, like maybe trying both. I would love to stay with Coded Ambassadors, but those are very active heads. And as soon as there's a big PA involved, you know, like when you have big subs, you know, pushing your floor tom sound out into the room, it comes back. It's like those, those drums are pretty open mm-hmm. and have a tendency to really get going. And like, you get that, that it's not, it's not feedback per se, but that concept of the drums just being activated by its own information out in the PA. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, I'm, I very well might go to, to Coded Emperors just because they're a little less active. But if it, all things being the same, the ambassador sound would be incredible. It's just, it might be a little too live. Right. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. What about like muffling and tuning live versus the studio? I find that because especially when you're outdoors, but just when you're in big spaces in general, like I, I always leave the drum. Say I, I wanted a snare drum, you know, if I was going to record a particular song and I wanted the snare drum to be like a, a 10 out of 10, just all the way dead, right? Like as dead as I could make it. If I was performing that song in a venue with a PA, I might make it like a seven out of 10 mm. or a six out of 10, like give it a little more life because you're not in a, in a small space with microphones that aren't being, you know, like any mic, any drum mic on stage is also getting some bass amp and some guitar amp and the PA and the vocal coming back through a wedge or something. You know, it, it, so it's a matter of 
if, if you go too stylized with the drums, they can get eaten alive and they just sound like boxes and or there's just so much other things, information coming in those mics because anytime you deaden a drum, you take away volume potential too, you know? Mm. So I always leave stuff about a third, you know, this is all, there's no objective, you know, scale to any of this, but about a third less dead than I would otherwise. I, I let them breathe a little bit more. But for my my application with with Misty, I leave them like, I have like a Roots EQ thing, you know, I might do on the snare for a couple different tunes, but Tom's wise, I just leave them. They're just wide open, 13, 16, mm. two ply over one ply. So uh, I, I I think that like that's that's the biggest problem is it, because you you get dead drums that aren't giving you a lot of information, and so then you're su- even subconsciously you're playing them harder, trying to get them to talk back more, meaning you're pushing through the what the drum wants to do. Now you're hitting the low end out of the drum because mm-hmm. you're playing too hard. You know, it's like it's all kind of like a house of cards that starts to fall apart if you you got to let the drums give you a little bit more back. But what it, about the kick, do you end up deadening it more live just for control? Not. Not really. I usually go like, you know, a power stroke type head on the batter and a, you know, code ambassador, whatever logo head, you know, on on the front. And, uh, and usually like maybe like a folded up packing blanket, you know, what I would say if it, if it was a studio environment, I would call it like the middle of the road bass drum, just like Mm. some stuff in it, power stroke three code and ambassador, you know, like medium felt beater, you know, just like the most normal kind of straightforward. But, and, and some of that is because with, the band I'm always trying to do, it feels like half our catalog is 1960s and half is 1970s. And so trying to get like a boomy bass drum and a dead bass drum from the same drum when you can't change it, you kind of mm-hmm. have to, you have to split the difference and no, you know, no one wants to do that, but it is what it is. You can't have the, the plastic Ono band bass drum when it's supposed to be righteous brothers, you know, mm-hmm. it just is what it is. Um, I've actually been looking at taking out two bass drums for that purpose. And so I can go very specific with each. So I can have like a full front head bass drum and then a super dead, even like no front head bass drum just to have the two, because that's our two sounds, you know? So maybe do one of each to try to bring some of that like studio environment into the live thing, you know? What about snares? Do you ever have two on stage or you just roll with one? I, I only ever play one. I have a second one. I have a spare on the riser behind me, you know, just because, mm. you know, when stuff breaks. But yeah, I just, I... I usually carry two or three drums and at, you know, when we're, when we're loading in and stuff, we'll kind of make a decision. Like I know, like I carry, I use uh, Jeremy over at Q drum made me a gentleman's aluminum years and years ago. That's still my, if we play outdoors, if we play a, a bigger room, if it feels like the snare just isn't cutting it, you know, if we're doing Coachella or something, it's just like, Oh, I need, I need some horsepower, mm-hmm. you know? So I'll do something like that. But if not, you know, it'll be like a wood drum or something. It, it It's very like I carry, several both as like oh no something broke but also like to kind of fit the space mm, you know because different dr- or you know you know how drums are one day you'll just take one out and it just plain doesn't sound good mm-hmm. you didn't change anything about it it might even be in your own space you you leave and come back the next day and it sounds like garbage and you're just like <laughs> what's going on so i find carrying a couple drums well if one's having a bad day like hey let's try this other one and it never fails that one sounds great for whatever mm. reason in that room and we just do that you know Does, you know when that happens I usually go to like, maybe the head's bad. Is that your first instinct or you just let it go and the next day maybe it's beautiful again? Who knows? It, you know, if, if it's, I'll definitely rehead it if it's like, say it was the same drum I just used for like six or seven shows. It's like, oh yeah, the head, it, we just reached the point where the head, you know, mm-hmm. dived. Because it feels like, it feels like heads have a point where like they sound, 
they sound like pretty good when you rehead. And then they sound amazing once you get a little bit of playing on them and they get like situated on the drums. And then they'll sound great. And then just one day they'll be gone. And mm -hmm. it's just like, oh, that those toms don't have any tone anymore. Or now they have a weird overtone and it's just the head being fatigued from, you know, you hit it one too many times and that was, <laughs> that's what it had left, you know? Yeah, that's a weird one. What about um, bottom heads? Do you have any kind of like tells when it's time to change those? You know, I just, I'm more or less, excuse me, I, I do like a, I bet I change bottom tom heads like twice a year if we're touring a lot. You know, maybe we do, if we say we do 80 shows, I probably get 40 shows on a set of bottom heads. Mm. Uh, and I, and I rehead the bass drum. I would only rehead a bass drum like once a year, but I do it once every run, you know, like when we complete six weeks, mm. that's when all, you know, like when we start back up in rehearsals the next time, it's like, okay, it's time to redo it. Just because nothing stops a show like a broken bass drum head, you know, but yeah, it, you know, it's just a, it's just a sound thing. I, like I don't have any hard and fast rules for top heads either. It's just one day they start to sound bad. And if it's like, Oh, I've replaced the top heads four times since I've done the bottoms. Uh, probably time to do a set of bottoms, you know, <laughs> because that is, that's a lot of, you know, when, when people ask me questions, often their kits will have either very old bottom heads or like the stock bottom heads still on mm -hmm. them. It's like, no, at some point, like you will notice a noticeable sound difference when you replace stock heads with, with real head, quote unquote, real heads, you know? Mm -hmm. What is your favorite symbol setup at the moment? I've, Man, I'm just using a lot of Agop traditionals. Um, usually, like some 15 inch hats. Usually, the 15 inch lights. Almost always, my my go to high hats. Uh, left side crash is almost always either like a 20 inch dark or thin, or the the 20 inch jazz ride is unreal as a left side symbol. Um, then usually like a 22 uh, traditional dark ride or a oh, what's the other one I really like? Obviously, the, the 24 Joey Warner is incredible. Uh, 24th, 30th. Those are pretty much my, my go-tos. Um, and then right side, either like another one of those 20 inch crashes on that side, if it's a two crash type setup or, or in the band, it's usually some kind of like rivet ride. So usually like a 21 inch Mel Lewis or a 22 inch traditional crash ride or something like that. Mm. Something that's like wetter than I, I like to think of it as like in the band, at least as you know, just like our, our, our music is kind of defined by decade that it's kind of pulling from. It's also, that's also a symbol thing. Like if you, you need a really dry pink symbol, if you're doing plastic Ono band, but mm -hmm. if you're doing, you know, like fifties big band, that's not the sound, you know, like you need something with a little more wash and a little more give. So I like to think of it as just like the left side, you know, crash is like my, my wettest ride. If I need it, I have a ride that's, you know, what everybody thinks of as a ride. And then some kind of washier, longer decay, right side kind of a crash kind of a ride usually rivets you know because that's that's an element that's in a bunch of our tunes and stuff mm. so so yeah usually kind of a really good crash a really good ride and then like a utility infielder type position you know and that's same when you're in the studio too more or less yeah it's it's like it'll it's it's either that right side symbol is either going to be a crash or some kind of rivet symbol for sure mm. yeah how much bell playing do you do because i find with those thinner darker symbols the bell usually the, is the bell gets lost and yeah. that's my i think that's why the new the, the the 22 inch dark is my favorite ride they make now and in the last two or three years they kind of changed the profile they're a little higher profile now so they have a little more stick and they've defined the bell a little bit yeah i i like a 
some of those dark dry symbols just don't have a functional bell. Not only is it not loud enough, but it just it's not centered enough to sound like anything. It's too mm. complex, you know. And that's a cool like sound effect, but if you're on a gig that requires like a bell pattern, that's not going to do it for you, you know. Yeah. Um and it's I I really wonder if we're going to see bell playing come back in like pop music at any point because that's a very 90s thing to do. Who's going to be the first dude to play bell and hi-hat at the same time like Carter? Who's going to do it? <laughs> somebody's going to do it and it's going to be amazing. Like that somebody that can be somebody's somebody's <laughs> plateau they get to, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's so got to come back. I mean, that, Carter Bofordism's got to come back, man. Yeah, and the Manu Cachet. I mean, that's oh, yeah. That's my dude. Yeah. That's my guy. Well, I mean, all those even the pop guys, you know, Omar, Hakeem, big bell player, Vinny, obviously a big bell player. All those yeah. 90s session dudes are like big time. But like all those adult contemporary pop top 40 hits, you know, like think of every Sting song is just bell everywhere, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Every time I go to the bell now, I get like, ah, don't do that. Like, it's yeah. like, just don't do it. <laughs> I went usually when I do it, it's in a like very stylized, like, oh, this is like 90s Prince funk, you know, where mm. that's the vibe, you know, or, uh, It'll be like, oh, this is kind of a James Brownie thing. So it's kind of the breakbeat bell thing, you know, like, but yeah, the, the like quarter note bell on the chorus just isn't the thing <laughs> currently. It may be at one point, but maybe again. Do you have any like go to reference records for different sounds? Oh, sure. Yeah, totally. Like, and, what would be the ones that, like go through some eras? Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, it's, you know, I would, I would bet most of them are, are pretty. You know, obvious is a bad word, but like if we're if we're talking '60s sounds, you have the like LA pop thing, the Beach Boys, Phil Spector, all that. So obviously, like Pet Sounds, mm. just listen to that anyway. But obviously, Pet Sounds, obviously that Righteous that Righteous Brothers record is unreal sounding. Um, I mean, any of that, just just go to Spotify and listen to like a, a 1960s LA pop playlist. It just like be my baby, you know, all those mm -hmm. jams. Um, and then if like. Then I think of it like maybe there's like the British 60s thing, which obviously is like Ringo. Uh, so, uh, you know, White Album, Revolver. And then as you get into like Let It Be, the like Deader 70s thing, mm -hmm. um, listen to those a lot for, for those sounds. Um, then, you know, 70s, obviously like Plastic Ono Band, come back to it all the time. That's the drum record, like maybe my favorite drum record of all time. Um, and then, you know, obviously like Floyd, obviously like Elton John, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. If somebody's mm. doing some like pretty like, for lack of a better word, kind of like opulent pop tune and it, and it has that like kind of slow tempo, you, get, you listen to like, you know, the title track, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. And it's just like, this sounds, sounds and feels unreal, you know? And then, you know, 80s, it, a lot of like, man, obviously Phil Collins for, for drum references. It's, you know, and it's, it's things I like, but it's also the things I get referenced. You know, they go mm. like, hey, we were thinking a drum sound like, and it's usually one of these records. You know, it's usually Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, or Tusk, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, that's, and that's not in any way a knock on, that's just, it's objective truth that these records sound incredible <laughs> because mm. everyone, everyone loves the same records, you know? Um, yeah, you know, 80s, obviously Phil Collins, Tears for Fears, uh, sowing the seeds of love specifically when I'm, when I'm trying to get a big production pop thing, um, man, foreigner, uh, the cars simply red, uh, Mr. Mr. You know, all that, like kind of mid eighties ballad love song stuff is great. Mm -hmm. Um, in the nineties, you know, obviously I'm starting to get the occasional reference for like Soundgarden, 
uh, did, did posted a thing today from March that I was trying to get a sound like that. Uh, uh, so, you know, if, if they say nineties, usually they're meaning like counting crows, third eye blind, right. Uh, matchbox yeah. 20, that like late nineties kind of pop thing. That's starting to come back. Um, like you listen to that, like Olivia Rodrigo stuff. It's like, Hey, like I, I this is great. Love this stuff. <laughs> um, and then to, you know, then as you get into two thousands, it turns into like indie rock world. And that's all, you know, like, then it's like, Hey, can you get this grizzly bear snare drum or this mm. national snare drum or, you know, this M83 snare drum, you know, whatever L- LCD sound system. Um, yeah, what I what I find really helps, and I, I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine recently about this kind of historical recording thing, is that it's one thing to go to like, man, I really like this LCD sound system record, you know, and like, and I want my tunes to have this kind of same vibe and maybe a similar sound, but it's important to go back and go like, and let's go listen to the cars because that's what he's listening to. Mm-hmm. Don't do a copy of the copy, like, not calling that dude a that dude's a genius. But just like he's clearly referencing things he grew up loving. It's like go back and listen to those things he likes. Like mm-hmm. read any interview he gives. He'll talk about his favorite records from that era. You know, like uh, I think that there's when you're thinking about records to go back rather than quoting something like. Like rather than going, oh, man, I, I really want like a 2006 killers thing. It's like, well, why don't we talk about doing a 1974 Bruce Springsteen born to run like. <laughs> Because that's clearly, they're super fans and so mm. am I, you know, like that's clearly that's what they're listening to trying to get in that space. You're going to come up with something cooler going to their influence rather than them directly. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I try to, I try to like, you know, keep an eye on what's going on currently in music and stuff. But so much of what I do is based on trying to replicate things, you know, historical recordings, you know. Do you go full nerd and like research what instruments did they play and what mics did they use? Or you I, go I more from your ear? My, my buddy, Matt, who built my, my studio um, is a great resource for that because he is like a 1960s studio dork, like knows it's like, Oh, that was at Capitol. Well, they were using this console and that would have been through this version of a Fairchild. Like not just that it's mm. a Fairchild compressor compressor. That's a series two, blah, blah, blah. You know, like whatever he, he knows that stuff. Um, for me, it's just kind of having a rough idea of what was going on at the time. You know, it's like, okay, what was Ringo playing? He was playing a new out-of-the-box Ludwig kit. It's like, all right, well, we have drums like that. We can, you know, we can get that thing. Um, you know, then you watch some, like, the the new Beatles doc is incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a 60s studio dork fest. I mean, you're just <laughs> watching people work in rooms with all these, like, mythical pieces of gear. And it's like, that's not a Trident, that's the Trident A-Range or whatever it is. It's like, mm. that's the one. Um, so stuff like, you know, watching concert films, watching studio footage or documentaries, that's fun to do anyway, but also I'm doing it with an eye of like, oh, that's just a U67 over the drum kit. Oh, okay. That's, that's the drum set. And then like a D12 on the, on the bass drum. Like, oh, all right. Well, future reference. I know like, you know, if, if I'm going for the, like, let it be thing, try to get a, a, you know, large diaphragm thing and a kick out and, you know, uh, just, I, it's not anything I do specific research into, but it is something I'm like kind of always aware as uh, aware mm. of as I'm taking in kind of music media. You know, have you ever um, found yourself going maybe oh, too far, like cartooned version of of oh for <laughs> like sure. Well, and I think that it's tough to. That is a I, I'm working on a track with a, a friend of mine that I'm I'm. It's going to be the first thing I ever mix actually, and it's it's. 
stylistically it's it's stylized like a like doobie brothers song like that's the point it's like it's it's very on the nose letting you know what the references are mm. and it was it's a tough line to walk because you're not trying to do parody you know mm. it's like a, a a real good example is the oh what is the anderson pack bruno mars thing uh their their duo thing record that just came out that's that's great they do a good job of walking a line of like it could so easily being like making fun of Teddy Pendergrass, but it's mm. not, you know, it's like, or, or Luther Vandross, but it's not like it's, it's, it's a loving like homage and there's, it's, there are no rules about it, but you certainly have to think like, am I, am I doing this to prove some kind of point or am I doing this because like it serves the song and you can wear the, the influences on the, on your sleeve. That's fine. It's just like, there is a point where things become parody. Mm. And it's like, okay, that's a little too, that was a notch too much, too much sauce on that, you know? Yeah, I feel like the the dead sound can go that way. Like the snare can become so deep and so ridiculous. And just and when you're that like ultra deep kind of I mean the people who go the furthest with it would be like the 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 contemporary Christian deep snare drum is like the the furthest version of that. It's it's tuned like a floor tom. The snare wires are like loose as heck. You know, like it's yeah. that splat thing to the there's it's the furthest you can take that kind of sound. And it, it is like, there's a reason all those records are sample replaced because a drum, like a, a snare drum like that can't fight through hi-hats. Mm. Snare drum like that can't fight through a crashed ride the whole time. So it has to be a, a trigger and a sample. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you can definitely go too far. And that's, again, what we're talking about. Like when you make the drums too dead that they can't compete with the cymbals, they just get eaten. Or they can't compete with the stage volume. They just, they get eaten, you know? Um, yeah, I think that people, and I get it, man. I like, when you're when you're messing around going for a low snare drum sound, when you get when you if you accidentally settle into that ultra low amazing deep thing, it's it's so fun. Mm. Like it's really fun to hear. It's fun to play. But it like snares like that have such a hard time fighting through a track or keeping other information out of those mics. It, it's like when you're going to do that, it's almost like that snare drum becomes a, a template you can lay a sample on, and it's like understood going in that that's the plan. You know. Mm. So yeah, I definitely think you can go too far with with uh, particular sound. Yeah. I know I'm I'm guilty of it sometimes. Like I think it's lower than my bass drum. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Are you going to be totally. doing any more of your master classes? You know, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I I, uh, I kind of stumbled into doing it in the first place, and as of right now, I I the only thing left is kind of approach like how to actually play the drums, mm -hmm. and I don't know that that's my like gift to teach that part. I think that this came, this started out with just like, I was getting enough questions and enough of the same question over and over and over that it was like, Oh, clearly there's just not, there's a kind of a lack of good information out. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, my thing has never been that I'm going to do, I'm going to teach you how to record drums. I'm going to teach you how I record drums. And if you have another method that gets you to where you're going and you just, you know, like, like I, for instance, I've, I've like, watched a bunch of like Blair Sinto stuff recently mm -hmm. going back. We did a podcast. I checked out some of his stuff and it's so cool to see somebody working a different way. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's not how I achieved that, but that sounds great. And it's really cool that, you know, like it's, it's really cool to see that there's multiple roads to get you to a destination, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I just completely blanked on what the original question was. But. <laughs> Are you going to do any more? <laughs> oh, sorry. So, uh, so yes, uh, uh, so you know, if I if I find an angle on that, I'm that's interesting to me and and is going to be fun for me to make, then yeah. Um, mm. But 
it's always my educational stuff has always been my focus has always been on being a player like i just i i the thing i like to do i like to play shows and i like to put songs on you know drums on songs mm -hmm. so the obviously the venn diagram they all kind of overlap doing some education stuff too but a lot of it's just do i have the time to like allocate to doing these because especially i mean even even as low production as i keep my stuff on purpose it's still between I mean, clearly when you watch my stuff, I don't have a script. So like I'm going off the top of my head for 20 minutes at a time. I have to try nine and 10 and 11 times to get 20 minutes that I like, because mm. I don't like edits. I don't like losing my train of thought. Obviously when I'm a podcast guest, you obviously like start me going and I just go. <laughs> so that, but that's how I work when I do educational stuff too. So it's like, I might get a chapter every other day because it took me 15 takes to get, mm like the points I wanted in the order in the, with the correct emphasis in the wording I wanted them to, you know, there's, it's, it's a, you know, it's just like recording drums and trying to get a full take rather than punching sections. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like it, what I think in the end result is always going to be better, but it does take more work to get there, you know? So it's one of those, if it, as it feels like it's rewarding to do, I kind of get the like drive to do one. Mm -hmm. And then I like, and then I finish it. And I'm like, oh gosh, that took that was like a solid month of doing that. Like I think, <laughs> I think I'm good for a bit. <laughs> and then I like, you know, get cool off for a little bit, and then get some new idea. And like, oh, it'd be fun to talk about that or whatever. So, so we'll see. But I never, I never really have a plan that I never had a plan past making one. So yeah, it's just like kind of as it's like, oh, people are obviously responding to this. Like, great. I guess I'll talk more about this particular thing or whatever. Do you ever think that parts one and two may need to be redone as you? mature and get more experience or are they oh for, for sure like i i would say that i may i mean well especially because of the pandemic and i haven't been touring like i'm an exponentially better engineer than i was then like not mm. it's not even close and that's just from i've been an engineer seven or eight hours a day for four years since i made that you know like mm -hmm. then that's all i've done so yeah I, I mean at some point um but that's why i tried to keep it pretty like it's just really the first one is just like how I initially reheaded a kit, you mm -hmm. get it, get it going. I try to keep that like that part. That's just my process for reheading, so that'll never change. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely have thought about that. That things like, or like things that I, you know, maybe I've learned something in that space in between. It's like, man, I wish I knew that then to be able to. It was a real shortcut to get to you know whatever I was trying to do or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe at some point, but I don't. Uh, there, there's no plan specifically. No. So were each of these like inspired by questions or by like a project you were working on? Kind of some of each. The, the, the first two were definitely like, because I was getting like, hey, what heads should I use? How do you rehead? You know, like those same questions. How do you seat a head? How do you blah, blah, blah. How do you set up a drum kit? You know, um, and then it feels like from three on out, you know, three being the where you just follow along as I do a remote session. That was like, oh, wouldn't it be, I bet it'd be interesting to have somebody, if somebody wanted to watch me go from like receiving files to turning in files, you know, uh -huh. just like how I get my sounds, how I'm going to think about it. Oh, I'm going to do a loop and an overdub and I'm going to like what I'm trying to achieve, you know, what I want the track to feel like all that stuff. Uh, and then obviously kind of the similar with the dead sounds. I just got a question about how am I getting my dead drum sounds so much? I'm just like, well, here's this open book. Here's how I do it. You know? Uh -huh. uh, and then the, the phase class being a, a purely like utilitarian, just like, Here's how to get all your mics talking together nice, and so you don't have to think about it anymore, you know. But Very cool. yeah, it, it's it's been a, it's been fun making it and and making them and and 
educational stuff is never something I thought I would ever do, mm-hmm. but it's been, it's been a good kind of exercise for me. Cause I, as much as it, as talking about, as I am, this is definitely a defense mechanism for being a, a like a, a, not a, what's, what's the word? Not a hermit, but I'm a very like reserved person. Like I, I, it's a Fellow lot of emotional introverts. We're introverts. introverts. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> it's a lot of emotional in- energy for like, if I go to the NAM show, I'm exhausted afterwards because like, yeah. I just don't have that ability. I don't know. That's such a skill to be like a public speaker and all that stuff. And I just don't have it. So like, it's been a good exercise for like kind of putting myself out there. Cause they are, you're just hanging out with me in my room. They're very, they're very personal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, it's been a good kind of public speaking ish type of exercise, but yeah, it's been, yeah, it was definitely never something I foresaw myself doing for sure. Yeah. You know? I think they're great. And I love that you leave some so. of the, um, I love that you keep it as one take, like the one I was watching today when you were trying to get the snare to, to choke out and kind of reactivate and it wouldn't like, Oh, well, this yeah. one just won't do that. Cool. Totally. And it was just like, Oh, today this one's having a bad day. And like, yeah, <laughs> I, and I think that that's, and that's why when I did the tuning one, I wanted it to be, to be in real time because part of learning is like, if say you're tuning your 13 inch rack Tom and it's, you know, if you watch me do it and from start to finish while I'm talking about it is like, say it's eight minutes or whatever. Right. Like if you did it in two minutes and you're having problem, you, you probably missed something. And if it's mm-hmm. taking you 20, you're probably worrying about it too much. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the period of time stuff takes is part of the, you go like, oh, this person does this all the time and it takes him eight, eight minutes. So like, I'm, you know, as I'm picking it up and it takes me 10 minutes, that's perfectly reasonable and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, but if you're, if you're just fighting the fight with that rack time for 25 minutes, something's up, you know, like I, right. I think that that it lends like a kind of a third dimension the, the time aspect, I think that's why all my, my classes are so long, is that the, the time aspect gives you like a level of depth that you wouldn't be able to get if it was just like, here's how you turn a rack tom, you know, snap cut, mm-hmm. rack tom tuned, you know, like that doesn't really help anybody, you know. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We've reached the hour mark, so oh, that's yeah, man. it for this episode, and hopefully... You'll be back out on the road sometime soon, and you'll come through Pittsburgh. Hope, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you on the East Coast. So thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Dan Bailey. Once again, go over to Vimeo On Demand. Check out his courses. They are under the title The Bailey Method. They are all essential, must-have um, resources for home studio recording drummers. Also, if you're looking to make any purchases before the holidays, make sure you go over to drumfactordirect.com, get your heads and sticks, accessories and parts ordered now before we get to the end of the shipping deadline to make it for Christmas. Uh, and also, if you don't mind, drop a review over on iTunes wherever you get your podcast. Five-star rating will help spread the word. Also, feel free to share the episode on your own socials. If you don't mind, tag us. We will uh, repost those. And that's about it. So you guys all have a good week and we'll see you next time.